I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening to this series in Jude. And uh, I want to just do a super quick 35, 45 second update. We're talking about false teachers. And if you've been wondering during this series, why, why is he calling out by name these false teachers? Well, I wrote a blog just for that, just to answer that question and a couple other questions with it. And I would encourage you to get on our website, read that blog. You'll understand why I'm calling out names, why there's a biblical precedent. It is war. It is war against false teachers. They are creeping into the church, and we've got to be ready to contend for the faith. And Christians all over our country are stepping into the ring, and they are fighting for the faith of God. Listen to this video. For Cody Thacker, running is her passion, and she was ready to go for gold at her regional cross-country meet held last Saturday. I've been training since June for this race, and to, you know, it's kind of like the climax of my season to run regionals and see how well I do. But three numbers got in the way of that dream. I just don't believe that 666 should be a number that's anywhere on your body, and I did not want that number associated with me. Of course, I was upset because I'd trained all season for it, but in another sense, I stood up for my beliefs and I stood up for God. Do you remember last week with Jose Luis Jesus de Miranda, who is a pastor in Miami, has hundreds and thousands of followers, has 666 on his forearm and his followers are are putting it all over their bodies because they believe that he is the Jesus. He is Jesus Christ. Well, listen, there's a lot of heresy in this country. And there's a lot of people in the church, even though they're stepping into the ring, there's a lot of people who are rising up and they're trying to lead the church away from the faith. They're not contending for it. They're bringing in heresy. They're bringing in destructive beliefs and creeds to try to water down our faith. Do you remember, I, I heard this when I was a little boy, I think, um, oh, I might have been fifth or sixth grade in, in school, but do you remember the famous saying from George Santayana, those who cannot remember the past are what? You're cheating, aren't you? You're seeing it on the screen. I forgot it was up there. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And I want you to think about that for a second. So let's let's do something at the beginning. This is an intro to this sermon. You could so easily leave here tonight. You could leave here today feeling and being the exact same way you came in being. And I want to challenge that. I want you to deliberate with this sermon. I want you to put your mind in gear and I want you to think through it. I want you to apply it in your life. Sometimes you might want a pastor to apply the sermons a little bit more. You want more practical preaching. Everybody likes practical preaching, except it can make us lazy. We need to understand the word of God and you need to apply it. You need to live it. You need to put it into action when you leave here. And what we're beginning with this thought is if you forget the past... You're likely to repeat it. Jude knows this. Jude knows this principle. And he's dealing with false teachers who have forgotten the examples in the Old Testament. The apostasy that came in into Israel. And he writes, look at your text, look at verse, verse 11. Woe to them. 
Listen, you don't want to be on the end of a woe to them in the Bible. You don't want to be hearing that directed at you. It's the curse, it's the judgment of God upon a person or a nation. If Jesus says, which he did, woe to Chorazin, if he says woe to a city or a town or a people, then his judgment has fallen. His judgment has fallen. Jude is writing very, very strongly. He's saying God's judgment and God's curse is falling on you, false teachers. Your judgment's coming. And he's sounding the warning to the churches. Do not follow these false teachers. Don't follow their corrupted path. You get it, you get a, an idea of what this path is. Can you look at it again at verse 11? And again, we're, we're introing. We're going to jump into it in less than a minute. Look at, the, look at this path. For they walked in the way or the, they got onto the path of Cain. Abandon themselves for the sake of gain and perished in Korah's rebellion. So they walked in the way of Cain. You're going to see they started to pick up steam. They began to escalate their, their abandonment in this way. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. Sake of Balin's gain. And they perished in Korah's rebellion. Now listen, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Now listen, you've got a Jewish mind, right? I'm going to put a Jewish mind in your head right now. If you wanted to ask a Jew in first century, give me a trio of the most evil, pernicious, destructive men from the Old Testament. Here's who they're going to tell you. Cain, Balaam, Korah. Do you understand that? This is These are the top evil people. From the Old Testament. Jude is bringing these examples because they've forgotten the past and they're condemned to repeat it. So let's look a little more deeply into this. So here we go. We're going to dig into this. I'm going to go not nearly as deep as we ought to. There should be a sermon for each of these, for Cain, for Balaam, and for Korah. We don't have time to do that. So I'm going to get a little bit into this and I'm going to trust that you're going to go even deeper. Here's point number one. And this is how you start getting your mind in gear. You ready? False teachers reinvent worship. False teachers reinvent worship. Now what I'm teaching you is throughout this series, how do you discern false teaching? How do you know it when you see it? Because what I've been hearing and what I've experienced personally is that sometimes you're in false teaching and you don't really know that it's false teaching. There's just something in your spirit that's kind of recoiling a little bit. And then later you go, you know what, I think that was wrong. And then maybe even later you find out, wait, that that was really wrong. That was heretical. How did I not pick that up? It's almost frog in the kettle. You get in false teaching long enough and all of a sudden you begin begin to become desensitized to it and you don't hear it anymore the way that we ought to. So what I'm doing in this series in Jude, I'm doing what Jude is doing. He's, He's teaching us how do you see false teaching? How do you know it? How do you discern it? Well, number one, false teachers reinvent worship. Have you ever heard of C3 Exchange Church? In Michigan, Pastor Ian Lawton. Listen, this church recently, it was in the news just not too long ago, this church just recently removed the cross from its steeple. 
And they changed their name from Christ Community Church to C3 Exchange. They wanted to do that because they've got, well, you'll hear it in a second. They've got Muslims and they've got all sorts of people coming and they wanted to proclaim their diversity. This is a pretty big church and it's up in Michigan. Watch this video. Pastor, um, from what I understand, you want to so-called de-church your church and for you, the cross or the crucifix has become a negative Symbol. How is that so if this is a Christian church? Well, here's what's happened at C3 over the last couple of years. We've had a number of people join our community. We've had Buddhist, Jewish people, Muslims, gay people, spiritual but not religious. Everyone's come and joined. So we've changed the name and moved the cross to kind of catch up with who we've become. Basically, there's something we have in common that's, that's, uh, that goes much beyond all of those differences And that is we want to be all we can be in the world. Now, what do you think of that? If you're in this church, I'll show you a little while. I'll show you in a few minutes another video from somebody who is a member of that church that's contending for the faith in that church. But what do you think of that? When you when you hear that they're removing the cross, they're taking the name Christ out and replacing it with C3 Exchange because they want to accommodate. He said they want to catch up to who they've become. They want to accommodate gays and Muslims and, and Jews and everybody else that's coming. Now listen, there's some people who are going to say, what well, we applaud that. I'm going to tell you what Jude would say. They're reinventing worship. They're reinventing Christianity. They're making it, listen, this is key, this is the buzzword today, they're making it inclusive. You hear that? Inclusive. Letting everybody in, wanting everybody in, and wanting a message that will accommodate everybody. Listen, Jesus Christ made Christianity exclusive. Said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He didn't say there were paths to heaven. That's pluralism. That means there's a lot of paths going up the mountain, and they all get to the top. Doesn't matter if you start out in a Buddhist religion or a Hindu religion or a Baha'i religion. Doesn't matter. You're all going to get up to the top, and you're all going to have salvation because we all believe in one God. That's inclusive, pluralistic religion. That's the church caving to the pressures of the world. We're exclusive. Doesn't mean we don't love you if you're hailing from a different orientation or if you're hailing from a different religion. We love you even more. We want to love you into Christ, but not accommodate you or compromise. We see these false teachers, look in your text, these false teachers walked in the way of Cain, and it means that they chose Cain's path. What does Cain's path look like? You know, the Jews had a lot of um, commentaries called Targums. They were often written in an Aramaic language. They would They would write the Old Testament text in Aramaic language, and then they would... They would write a sermon off of that, kind of like I'm giving you a sermon today. They would write these sermons and they would call them Targums. And there was a lot of them, and one of them, the most, one of the most famous called the Jerusalem Targum, it was a sermon by a rabbi on Cain, and it goes like this. 
There is neither judgment. This is, they're depicting Cain as saying, there's neither judgment nor judge. There is no other world. No good reward will be given to the good and no vengeance taken on the wicked. That was a sermon on Cain, which sums up Cain did not believe there was any consequences for his actions. There's no judge, no judgment. In other words, there's nothing of what the Bible calls the righteous fear of God in Cain's eyes. You know what the righteous fear of God is? It says that, you know, it's, a, it's what dominates your heart saying, I will be answering to a God who created me, whom should receive all glory. And I am in awe of him in my heart. I am in awe of him and I tremble at his name, not because I am in groveling, slavish fear, but because he is so great and I am not so great that I fear him. I love him. I adore him. I worship him. I want to be with him. I I want to be exalting him. That's the fear of God. Cain had no fear of God. The way of Cain is to step onto a path where you gradually lose your fear of God. And it comes through the teaching of a false prophet or a false teacher. See, when a person steps onto the path of Cain, when they feel there are no consequences to their choices... That their way is higher than God's way. Their authority is greater than God's authority. Then listen, they are walking behind the footsteps of a man that's already marked out the path, Cain. And once you're onto that path, the inevitable direction it travels, it's called the way of Cain. That's the way of Cain. So let me just sum that up. The way of Cain is a path you step on. You may not even know you're there for a while because you'll end up there when you gradually lose the fear of God, the adoration of God, the awe of God, the love of God. When you lose that and you don't worry about consequences anymore, you believe your way is higher than God's, your authority is higher than God's, and there is no consequence for your actions, you're firmly walking on the way of Cain. Now, I've had people come to me and say, Pastor Tim, I'm doing something that is really, really wrong. I've got a habit in my life and it's it's wrong. I know God doesn't want me to do it. And I said, well, you know what? That's a good place to start. You know God doesn't want you to do it and you're coming to, to confess that to me, to tell me. So how about I come alongside you and I help you get off that path and onto righteous living? And that person said to me, no, I don't really want to stop. I said, well, why are you even coming to me? Well, because I'm not very happy in my life right now. Well, I could tell you why you're not happy in your life. You're walking in a direction that God's stripping you of joy because he wants to bring you back to him. But you're committing to go the way of Cain. Genesis 4, you can see it on the screen behind me. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. Brothers. Cain's the older brother, Abel's the younger. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. That Hebrew word, no regard, means God's actually in dismay. 
you've got to be kidding me, Cain. You're actually bringing me that offering? It's like his hands are... The, the word is figurative for your hands go over your face like this. You've got to be kidding. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Now it's clear that God had taught them how to worship. He taught them how to worship. How do you know that? Well, Abel knew. Abel's a younger brother. They knew how to worship. God never asks you to do anything He's not going to teach you how to do. He's taught them how to worship. He knows the story of Adam and Eve when they fell and God took animals and He killed them and He brought coverings for the man and the woman, symbolic of the need for righteousness from some other person or sacrifice to come over you to cover your sin before God, to help you have peace with God. They knew all of these stories. And they were instructed how to worship God. And they knew that it was by faith. They knew that it needed to be a blood sacrifice. That's what it means to be by faith. You're putting your faith that God will accept the offering of this animal to cover my sins. And that takes faith. You can't, men, some of us like to be engineers. You can't engineer that. That's got to be something you trust. You place your confidence in. They knew what Hebrews would later say, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. They were taught this. God modeled this with Adam and Eve. And so the brothers each bring an offering. Abel brings an offering from his flocks. It's an animal offering. The shedding of blood. And the shedding of blood, friends, listen, all that means is that you kill the animal. You don't extract a pint and throw it against the altar and the animal goes off and lives. The animal has to die. That's what it means. And Cain brings an offering from his harvest, from the fruit of the ground. And Abel's offering, now listen, this is the fulcrum that you got to get this if you want to understand the way of Cain. Abel's offering demonstrated his need for mercy. I know, Father, I know God, I'm in need of mercy. I'm a sinner. And he knew that that mercy was a gift from God to him. Now look at it the other way with Cain. Cain's sacrifice, listen, it represented his hard work. It was a gift from him to God. See, one was by faith, the other one's by works. This is the classic controversy between faith and works. God rejects the works because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous. No, not one. Even every good work we do is tainted because it's falling short of the perfection and the holiness of God. Salvation has always, in every single case of anyone ever being saved, it's been by undeserved grace, listen, through faith. See, the way of Cain is this. It's a different path than that which God had instructed. It's a new way, it's a false way to worship. When you don't want to come to God in your utter need of mercy, then you come to God through your effort, which is unacceptable, it is worthless, it's a false way because there is no faith in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. It's all about me making it because I'm good enough or I'm trying hard enough or I've been baptized as a baby or I'm doing enough church attendance. None of those are acceptable to God. But notice something that we often miss when we're studying Cain. 
Look at verse 16 up on the screen. Cain was not put out of the presence of the Lord. He chose to leave it. God did not do with Cain what he did with Adam and Eve. He put them out of the garden, Adam and Eve. He didn't do that with Cain. He didn't put Cain out of his presence. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. That's the direction that the way of Cain always takes. It will walk a person out of the presence of God. I don't want mercy. I don't want faith in Jesus. I want to control my salvation. I want to work for my salvation. I want to put it on my terms. And it creates a religion that's stripped of the presence of God. It's devoid of faith. And this is exactly what the false teachers were teaching in Jews' day. And it's happening again today. I'll show it to you in a minute. They're stripping Christianity of Christ and his atonement, and the need for faith. Listen to this. This is mind-boggling. Dr. Dolores Williams, in a conference called Reimagining, had 2,200 clergy, men and women. She said this in her question and answer time, quote, I don't think we need a theory of atonement. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. That's the way of Cain. I don't want the atonement. I don't want the penal substitution, penalty substitution. I deserve the penalty. Jesus Christ substituted himself on my behalf on the cross, took the wrath of God on my behalf, gave me life on his behalf. I don't want that. I want a new atonement. I want a new reinvented worship. And it's the emergent church. It's what they're doing today. Remember that church in Michigan that's taken the cross out? There's a person in that church. He's a he's involved in ministry. He he has a comment on that. He's contending for the faith. Watch this. Well, well, first of all, I'd like to clarify. I don't have a problem with um, C3 taking down the cross. I actually think it shows a lot of integrity because they're not standing for the message of the cross anymore. Um, the cross is a, um, a message that for followers of Jesus Christ, that that symbol has high value. But the Bible clearly states that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. He says very clearly, no man cometh to the Father but by me. And Christianity, by definition, presents Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation and reconciling man to God. So to have that combined with other religions, um, I think it's confusing. Mr. Wisson? Thank you for your uh, comment, uh, Pastor Lawton. Thank you. So Cain's sacrifice required no faith. For he viewed himself in no need of mercy. He brought a gift from the ground rather than a gift of a shedding of blood. And Cain refused to worship God in the way that God had prescribed. Instead, he worshipped the way he wanted to worship. It was a vain, empty religion, denying the power and the authority of God. He reinvented worship. He reimagined it. He reinterpreted God's word that had been taught to him. Listen, Cain is the original apostate. He's the first false teacher of the Bible behind Satan. And he's rejecting God's word and he's throwing off faith. He literally created a dead religion. That's the way of Cain. 
Now listen, when you see something like that coming into a church or a denomination, it's this increasing your courage to contend for the faith, to do something about it. Is it making you mad? You want to defend Christ? You want to, you want to contend for the body of knowledge of God's redemptive plan from Genesis to Revelation? Listen, this is coming in churches all over our country. This, this need to redefine the atonement and strip it of Christ. But look at the second one. False teachers are driven by selfish motives. I'm going to you to watch a gospel singer. His name is Pastor Marvin Winans. He's a preacher. He preached the funeral of Whitney Houston. Watch this clip. If God wants somebody to be broke, would you tell me who that is? <laughs> Who's volunteering? <laughs> I, I can't get no hands here. It's all about money. It's the prosperity theology. So the apostates of Jude, the ones that Jude's calling out, they abandon, look at your text, they abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. That word abandon in the Greek. Now I want to give you just a brief glimpse of this because it's really interesting. It means to gush out. And it was often used in, a, in the sacrifice, a word connected to sacrifice, is the neck of the animal was cut and the, the heart would pump the blood out in a matter of seconds. It would rush out. It, the word means to run after, means to rush headlong after whatever it is you desire. So Jude's referring now not to Cain. Cain is reinventing a false worship. Now he's referring to Balaam, who's driven by selfish motives, and he's a prophet that you could hire. Now listen, what's a prophet for hire? A prophet for hire is somebody that will, if the price is right, tell you what you want God to tell you. It's all about money. You give him enough money, then God will say this. Whatever you want God to say, the prophet will make it happen. It's a profit for hire. See, prophets taught the people the word of God. This might be confusing to some of you, but prophets do the same thing, did the same thing that I'm doing with you today. They preached. Now, sometimes they were foretelling God's word, but most of the time they're forth-telling. They're simply telling you what God told them to tell you. They had God's word spoken to the prophet, and the prophet would speak it to the people. Very similar to what I'm doing, except when the prophet of God spoke, it was always without error. It was inerrant. It was it was inspired by God. Those prophets that were spoke in, into the word of God, and it was written down, they did it without error. I'm subject to mistakes. That's why I'm telling you all the time, look in your text, see if what I'm saying is right, because I can make errors. But they taught people the word of God. So Revelation 2 in regards to Balaam, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold, listen, the teaching of Balaam. So Balaam's teaching. And this guy named Balak, the king of Moab, he looks out and he beholds on the plains below the Moabites, their region that they lived, were all of this, this vast congregation of Israelites. 
They're, they're settling there for a while because they're about to cross over into the promised land. But God's word came to Balaam because Balak hired Balaam, gave him money, said, I'm going to give you a load of money if you will come and you will put a curse onto the Israelites. And so Balaam actually sets out to do that and God stops him. God says to him and God's word came to him and commands him, do not curse Israel for they are blessed by me. But Balaam tries to go anyways because he wants the money. And God stops him in his tracks. But Balaam still makes it to Balak. And instead of cursing the Israelites, four, time he pr- four times he prays and he blesses the Israelites. And the text says that Bal- Balak did this. He, he slapped his hands together and started yelling at Balaam. I hired you to curse them and all you're doing is blessing them. And Balaam says, well, listen, I've been commanded to bless them. And by the way, let me tell you what's going to happen to you through the Israelites. And he lays out a prophecy. And you might be thinking, well, Balaam's not that bad of a guy. Peter has a different opinion. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray, false teachers. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. He loved money from doing what he knew he should not be doing. And he taught, here's what he did. Balaam was pretty smart. We'll read it in the text in a minute. But since he couldn't curse the Israelites... He taught Balak how to make the Israelites stumble and follow other gods. Look at what Revelation says again. He taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Balak, God's not letting me curse them, but let me tell you what to do. Take your women, take the beautiful ones, and send them down to the camp. And by the way, get the Midianites to get some of their ladies too, and send them down there, and let the men start following these women and when they fall in love and they begin to have sexual immorality with them then these women are going to pull these men to to their gods and then you won't need to you don't need to worry about me cursing them god will do it for you and it worked there on balaam's advice numbers 31 says caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came upon the congregation of the Lord, came upon the Israelites. It did work. And the wrath of God fell upon Israel, but the wrath of God, listen, consumed Balaam as well. He died. He was caught in his own trap. See, God will defend his word, friends. He will not abide anyone changing his word for any reason. And what Jude is saying is that these these false teachers, they're doing this for money. They're greedy. They want gain. They'll get gain from wrongdoing. They're setting aside the word of God. They're changing it to what you want to hear in order for you to give them influence and money and power. So, so far we've got Cain who reinvented worship. And now we've got Balaam, who was running after his own selfish gain. And now we've got the third point, and that is Korah. And the third point is this. False teachers are motivated by a lust for power. Now, let's pause for just a second. 
Remember what I'm teaching you? What I'm teaching you is what Jude is teaching us, and that is how do you how do you see false teachers? You look at their fruit. You look at their fruit. Are they changing the word of God? Are they reinventing? Are they not happy with what 2,000 years of church fathers agreed on and what the apostles taught in the New Testament? Are they changing it now? This thing called the new perspective of Paul, if you've heard of that, means that, well, you know what? In the 21st century, you can't possibly know what Paul meant when he wrote. So you got to get back into first century and gain a new perspective. And all of a sudden, the atonement doesn't look anything like the atonement that we believe it to be. Listen, they change the word of God. How do you know false teachers? They're going to change the word of God. And sooner or later, their love for money, their love for pleasure, their love for power is going to come through and you're going to begin to see that. There's a church that's not too far from here. I have a really, really good friend that used to go there. And he had a really difficult incident come into his life. And this is not that big of a church, about our size. And he wanted to go talk to the pastor. Except when he went back to, after the service to talk to the pastor, there's all these really big, large men in all these dark suits, and you couldn't get beyond them. They actually turned him away and said, no, you need to call during the week and make an appointment. Now, that's not false teaching, and I'm not saying that that is. I'm just saying that there is sometimes a, there is an arrogance that could come into pastors, and I'm not, uh, in, I'm not immune to this. There's an arrogance that could come in that says we're, we're above everybody else, and you've got to run through hoops to get to us, and that's not the way of the gospel. False teachers, number three, are motivated by a lust for power. Here's Korah. He's the third in this unholy trio. Look what it says. They're, they're going to perish in Korah's rebellion. Speaking of these false teachers. So you've got this way of Cain that's still alive. And you've got this way of Balaam that's still active in the church of Jude's day and in our day too. And now you've got this rebellion of Korah that's still alive. It's not gone anywhere. It's in every generation of the church. See, who was Korah? Korah was a Levite, meaning he came from the tribe of Levi that was so wildly blessed by God that they had the sole job of teaching God's word and protecting the worship in the sanctuary of God. I mean, they had an awesome privileged status. They were the assistants to the priestly line. So you've got Aaron the high priest, and he's got and you got his priestly line, and then you've got all these thousands in the New Testament, twenty four thousand of them, I think it was, split into twenty four divisions, and they all take turns serving in the temple two weeks a year, one week at a time. You've got all these Levites that are assisting the priests to bring the worship of God to its peak in the people of Israel. But Korah wanted to be more than an assistant. Now, listen, I remember when I was the associate pastor, I came here for ni- in 1996. And for 10 years, I was the associate pastor of youth and, and counseling and Christian education. And, and I remember I preached a series of sermons when our lead pastor had to step away for two months. And I had people whispering to me, listen, are you, do you think you might go start your own church? Because if you start your own church, I want to, I want to go with you. 
And all these things started to whisper in there, and I could feel the pull of that. I could feel the pull of that. Man, I could, I could be the top guy. I can have power. I can have more position. Listen, there is a whisper of power that comes to most people. And Korah wanted to be more than an assistant. He wanted to be in charge. He wanted control. Look what number 16.3 says. Korah became insolent and rose up against Moses. Now listen to this. More than with them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders. These are the leaders of the church. Here's one of the Levites and 250 of the well-known, well-loved, well-appreciated leaders in the church. The church of Israel. Who had been appointed members of the council. They've got... They've got pull, they've got power, they've got influence. And they came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, You've gone too far, Moses and Aaron. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? Here's what they're saying, the whole community is holy. Who are you? You're not above us. We've got the same position as you. Who made you the boss? Alright, so a little application. Do you have somebody at church, at work that is over you? And you get that defiant spirit in you sometimes? And you want to say, who made you, who died and made you the boss? Who are you over me? Who do you think you are? Do you ever have that spirit of defiance? That's the lust for power. Paul says, be content in whatever situation, circumstance, position that God has put you in. Be content. And when God wants to move you out of that, whether it's up or down or laterally, then he will move you. But until then, be content. Well, Korah wasn't content. He wanted to move up. And he twisted what God had promised To Israel, Exodus 19, you shall be to me, God said, a kingdom of priests. And so he's saying, listen, we're all priests. We're all part of this holy nation. Well, listen, that's not true. He's a Levite. And there's the priestly line and there's the Levites and then there's 11 other tribes and they were priests. It's not until the New Testament there becomes the priesthood of all believers. That means you are just as uh, as able to be in God's presence as I am. You can pray and bring somebody that's hurting to God just as easily as I can. You've got access to the, the same word of God. You've got access to the same spirit of God as I do. We're all priests, Christian brothers and sisters, and we all bridge build. We bring the hand of God to the hand of people, and we build bridges. That's what it means to be a priest. But Moses responds, isn't it enough for you... In other words, is your ambition that bad? You're really that ambitious, Korah? That the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near himself to do the work at the Lord's tabernacle? Isn't that enough that you're part of the Levites? You've been given a special status and special anointing and proximity to God's presence? That's not enough for you? And now you want the priesthood too? I remember years ago, I've only had this twice in all of my years of pastoring. I've been in pastoral ministry now for for over 21 years, and I've had this happen twice, but I'll never forget either one. I had two people, one a guy and one a girl, 
come up to me when a man and a woman, they were older, came up to me and said, you know what, there is nothing anybody can teach me at this church. Listen, that's not a good place to be. Korah had an extremely privileged leadership position and he wanted more. And this is false teachers. They want more power. They want more position. See, false teachers don't want anyone in authority over them. So they attack those in leadership. You know what Benny Hinn once said of John MacArthur? See, John MacArthur was doing a little bit of what I'm doing, and that is calling false teachers out by name. So Benny Hinn got on the TBN, Trinity Broadcast Network. I got a video of this. I didn't show it because it's too garbled. But he got on the TBN, and he pointed at the camera and said to John MacArthur, I wish I had a Holy Ghost machine gun and I'd blow you away. I don't really know what a Holy Ghost machine gun is. Pretty sure it would fire love bullets. Probably probably would save Benny. Oh, that was kind of harsh, wasn't it? That was kind of nice. Watch this video with the theme of Cora in mind. You and mom get pushed in a corner. God help you. That's that's a lesson I've learned from you, seriously. God help anyone who would try to get in the way of TBN, which was God's plan and his I have attended the funeral of at least two people who tried. So I've attended the funeral, Paul Crouch says of TBN, of two people who tried to get in the way of that ministry. Didn't really see a lot of brokenness in pain on his behalf, but I'm pretty sure that those who opposed TBN or Benny Hinn weren't on the level of Korah's rebellion. Look at number 16. Moses prayed as soon as he finished saying all this, this prayer, the ground under... He, okay, let me back up. He brings Korah and two of the other ringleaders and their families together in front of the tent of the tabernacle of the Lord. He says, listen, before all the congregation, then let God answer who is to be the leader. So Moses prayed, God, if that's not, if, if you're not behind Korah, then open the ground up and swallow them and look what happens. The ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them. All of them, they went down alive into the grave with everything they owned and the earth closed over them and they were gone from the community. And then afterward, fire came out of the tent of the tabernacle of the Lord and consumed the 250 well-known appointed to the council over the people, the 250 leaders who Korah influenced to rebel. And the next day, now listen, this is mind-boggling. All the congregation was around to witness this, or at least they heard about this. The next day, the Bible says that the whole congregation, the whole Israelite community came and complained against Moses and Aaron, and they gathered against them, and the Lord sent a plague among them. And this is what's happening in Jude's day. They're rejecting the apostles' preaching. They're saying to these false teachers, I want power, and I want position. I want to call the shots who died and left you, boss, Jude or pastors of the church, it's our time to lead. Now, Cain thought he knew a better way than God's way. 
and he reinvented worship. Balaam was driven by greed and he rose up against the people of God. Korah was motivated by a lust for power. All three of them were religious. They all looked religious. And all three of them rejected God's word. Cain rejected the way that God said to worship. Balaam rejected, don't curse them, but bless them. Korah rejected, Numbers 16, I have made Moses and Aaron the leaders of this congregation. And Cain was cursed by God while Balaam and Korah were utterly destroyed. And many more besides because of their influence. You know how many people died Because of Balaam, the Bible says 24,000 Israelites. Listen, these are not inflated numbers. Do you know how many people died because of Korah's rebellion? The Bible says 14,700 people died because of Korah because he led them astray. So friends, will you contend for the faith? Warning false teachers and rescuing those in danger. You know, there's a lot of people in Cornerstone doing it. I'm getting emails daily almost with people saying, I am going to talk to this person. I'm going to go to my coworker. I'm going to go to this classroom. I had a college student uh, email me yesterday, two days ago and asked me, Pastor Tim, how do I talk to not only my professor who is at a Christian college and stripping the word of God of its inerrancy and its inspiration, how do I talk to him and how do I talk to my gay friends? Listen, they're wanting to get into the ring. And it is emboldening them, the book of Jude, emboldening them to courage. So cornerstone, step into the ring, contend at your jobs, your neighborhoods, your classrooms, your dorms. Let's get in the ring. Amen.